Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. This is Paul Starobin with America and Beyond. My guest today is the writer Bert Solomon. Bert is from the Baltimore area and has lived for many years in the Washington area in Northern Virginia. And he is a journalist by background and the author of, in the first place, a number of nonfiction books, including Where They Ain't, The Fabled Life and Untimely Death of the Original Baltimore Orioles, The Team That Gave Birth to Modern Baseball, The Washington Century, Three Families and the Shaping of the Nation's Capital, and FDR v. the Constitution, The Court Packing Fight and the Triumph of Democracy. Now, after writing these books, Bert took a turn towards fiction, and specifically uh, historical fiction. He wrote The Murder of Willie Lincoln, The Attempted Murder of Teddy Roosevelt, and now the third in his John Hay mystery trilogy, The Murder of Andrew Johnson. Uh, welcome to American Beyond, Bert. Thanks. Good to be here. So in that kind of brief summary arc of your uh career, your time in writing, uh, this turn towards historical fiction. Can you speak to that? Um, I assume you could have gone on with the the nonfiction books, but you made a turn that uh, is interesting. So what, what what is that about? Well, right. I'm basically a nonfiction guy, journalist, and those three books that you mentioned. Um, and there was a particular moment that I'll kind of it was decided that I wanted to give it. Oh, really? And I was staring at the screen one morning um, on writing the book about the Supreme Court and staring off into space through my window. And and an idea jumped into my head, which was a murder mystery in the Lincoln White House. I said, huh, I love murder mysteries. I love Lincoln. Wouldn't that be fun? I'm saying, hmm, that would just be cool to do. And about 30 seconds later, another idea dumping by Ed, which was John A. as the detective. And I didn't even know I knew who John A. was, but I obviously knew something about him. And he, in the Lincoln White House, was a, was a very young, early 20s, assistant private secretary to Lincoln. And actually, almost like the son to Lincoln. Um, and so I put those two together and kept thinking about it. Um, I'm thinking that would just been really interesting. And there's a couple of reasons why this really appealed to me. And one is that and good nonfiction delves into the motivations of the characters um, and tries to understand you know, what forces were impinging on them. Fiction lets you go even deeper and lets you get inside the characters in a way that I just found really appealing. That was always what interested me in reading. I mean, I I tend to read fiction for pleasure, and I really like getting inside the characters and understanding where they're coming from. Um, the, the Lincoln uh, historian, Michael Burlingame, talked about three kinds of history. One is narrative history, analytical history, and then it's what he calls emotional history. And a feeling of kind of being there. And he said that can be done as well and figure better doing true fiction um, as in non. Uh, the other thing that really drew me is 
my favorite quote along these lines, quotation along these lines is from Mark Twain, of course, um, who said that the truth is stranger than fiction because fiction has to stick to possibilities. Uh-huh. And the way I think about it, paraphrase this, is that fiction is harder to write than nonfiction because fiction has to make sense. Mm. Nonfiction did not have to make sense sense. Non-fiction goes off in all sorts of directions that nobody can predict. So historical fiction allows you to explore the possibilities mm-hmm. and have fun with them. Um, and so you, it, it, I, I think of it as kind of truth or non-fiction plus imagination. Mm-hmm. Uh, get to sort of check out all sorts of, I mean, I, I don't do counterfactuals. It's not like if the South won the Civil War. Yeah. Because of Without trying to keep the history straight, We're pretty straight. Yeah. Um, well, and we'll uh, talk. We'll talk more about that when we get into sort of yeah. the granulars of your latest book, which we will not give away. Uh, there won't be. I'm not going to offer spoiler alerts. I think I encourage everyone to read the book uh, with the pleasure that 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 I did. But we can get into sort of the the boiler room, as it were, of constructing this kind of a work, which is one thing that interests me very much. Um, you know, I note in your answer, uh, you, you came back to fun a couple of times and, um, journalism, I think of as, as it can be fun, but it can also be a real grind. Uh, and I don't know if that was part of it. What, if we could not be too delicate and what sort of stage in your life did you make this turn can we talk in terms of ages or i mean uh how 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 kind of far along were you uh i'm was i've been with jones for probably almost eight decades um and and i was in buying actually i think of my 50s when i started writing non-fiction books uh-huh. and and entered my 60s to write fiction um i'm really kind of a second uh i don't know career maybe too but but yeah which is uh yeah one thing that's i think fun about the writing life is that unlike let's say the life of the physicist or the mathematician it's it it can ripen with experience i wonder if you know could you have written books like the fiction books in a much earlier time in life or did it help to have the kind of experience you had already acquired I think it does, actually. That's an interesting thought. Um, I hadn't thought of it in that way. Um, yes, I, I think that the more you learn about yourself and kind of you know, internally, and the more you learn about other people and why they do things, but they didn't have the big ears, um, uh, give a lot of um, you know more interest and more knowledge about those sorts of things. I actually think about, and I, I was very in, Imitated what writing the first book about Lincoln, the new Derek Lincoln's voice. Yeah. Um, and and that was very long. Um, but I had to, I mean, I read it enough about Lincoln over the years to, you know, to know what sounds right and what doesn't sound right. Um, and I cleared out a lot of stuff and I would sort of keep it, you know, on the, oh, finally, I, I know that if that sounds pretty good. Um, it sounds kind of like him. I think that you need to get a certain sense of, you know, kind of how people operate. Um, I, I, I actually kept comparing this while I was writing it to um, acting, which I've never done. I had my uh, theatrical view and 
farewell from the stage on back-to-back nights in high school. Okay. <laughs> well, now you can join a very large crowd there. But what, what I've read about actors is that um, they, you know, people are complicated, right? Yes. And with a lot of different pieces to them. And yes. so an, an actor takes the part of him or herself that corresponds to the character they're trying to play and kind of tries to draw that out of themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that gets easier. I mean, actors obviously start in their you know, teens, 20s, 30s, and so forth. But for me, I think it got easier to do that and to kind of trace the piece, you know, the pieces of myself to write a dialogue for some somebody that's not you. You have to kind of imagine who they are and what's happening inside their minds. Um, I think that has gotten reasonable for me over the years. And so it makes it kind of more accurate in a sense or seemingly accurate um, as good as you can do um, in order to, I, I think the years have gone by, I've gotten better at that. Yeah. I would imagine that, I mean, one of the basic functions of journalism as well is what, what we call gathering material for a story is basically like the research that an author would do. So you've acquired, you know, one has acquired that kind of faculty as well. But, well, I mean, journalism, good journalism, I think, because it's not opinion journalism, requires that you understand the world from different aspects, mm-hmm. right? And learning to walk together, I think, was very useful in that because um, I, earlier I worked in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and, 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 such, and everybody kind of thinks in one way, or and that's overstating a little bit, but there's, yeah. there's a kind of mindset. Washington has all sorts of people here, and that you need to, in order to be journalists well here, you need to inspect their points of view. And so you need to try to understand the world as other people understand the world. Um, and so I think that actually helps in writing historical fiction um, or, or, or nonfiction history as well. But, um, but to understand the world from different points of view other than one's own. Yeah. Yeah, sort of the basic quality of empathy that that uh, well, good writers and uh, well, I would say good good people in in general, uh, we hope we hope have uh, maybe a bit of a digression, but just a little bit on what is historical fiction. We don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but but I find myself thinking about it as well. And so, in in preparing for for our conversation and thinking about it, I pulled up something I found uh, that describe historical fiction uh, as a genre that contextualizes real events through the author's lens. The best historical fiction should be entertaining and insightful, providing a so-called slice of life view of an era, event, or individual. Uh, And goes on to say that these literary gems possess the remarkable capacity to resurrect bygone areas, offering a window into the past that educates, entertains, and enchants. The best historical fiction novels invite us to embark on a journey of discovery where fact and fiction seamlessly coalesce. And then cites as a couple of the examples. One is uh, Wolf Hall on the events of Henry VIII and England's reign, the author Hilary Mantel. And then it, among the others, it mentions is War and Peace by Tolstoy. Um, and there I thought, you know, that's full of invented characters, of course, and I would say perhaps more of a 
historical novel or the backdrop is is history. So do you come down on that anywhere in terms of what historical fiction is or shouldn't should be? No, I mean it I, I mean it can work very well both ways. Um and you know Hillary Mantel and and um Paul Postbury are, are well regarded. Yeah, like we're having done it extremely well. Um um, and you know, Herman Melville and Spence wrote it and made up his characters too. Um, yeah, that's interesting, right? I hadn't thought of Melville. Which Caleb Carr did it, and he had you know, Katie Rosedell as mayor of New York, right? And so you can do it both ways. And so what I would do is, I mean, I felt most comfortable sticking as close to the facts and real characters as I could. Maybe a lack of imagination on my part. Um, but I felt nearly comfortable doing that. And and I found the historical research really, really helpful in all sorts of ways. Um, one, it gave me it, it, it gave me really good thought ideas. Mm-hmm. And I would do research and say, wow, I never could have thought of that. <laughs> I'm sorry. But with the real world thought of that. Um and and in the book that that is just coming out about the murder of Penny Johnson, there are a couple of things that I learned doing the research that just wasn't mind blowing. And I could I, I need to need these stories, um, not to give too much away, but but one of them was a uh, a uh, I found an interview with a former journalist written thirty years after Johnson's death, um, that that said that he had his journalists had interviewed Johnson right after he left the White House in Tennessee with Johnson was strong. And he was in the tailor shop where Andrew Johnson began his career before he became the seventeenth president following Lincoln's assassination. Um, and Johnson pointed to now the ex disgraced ex president because he had been impeached and left the office in some displays, pointed to a cabinet in his tailor shop and said, I have in your letters that will ruin the reputations of, of Republican office holders in Washington. He said, basically, you know, letters that yeah. he had. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. That's almost... That's a satisf- that must be a satisfying feeling to have, you know, when you're in the bowels of the research and everything, because, you know, we know that lots of times you're just sifting through stuff that doesn't really seem to pertain to much of anything. Yes. And so, I mean, that, sound, that was a great spotline on the garden makeup that I could expand on it and see the letters implicated and yeah. what the said. Um, and so that I could add to that's one the sort of the truth part of some imagination to that. Yeah. Uh, the, the other piece of it that I found even more amazing that was not unknown to historians, but historians have never been able to explain, was that on the day that John Wilkes Booth got Lincoln in 1865 in Washington at Ford's Theater, that afternoon, Booth had gone to the hotel in on Pennsylvania Avenue where Andrew Johnson lived, so there was no vice presidential um, mansion at the time, and left a note either for Johnson or for his private secretary saying, I don't want to disturb you. Are you at home? 
your name will lose. Really? You're yeah. Really that we shouldn't we should uh, that that either or is important too again without giving away the details because it wasn't i was struck by that detail as well for first of all i i i think that very few people even people who are well up on on lincoln and on the assassination are aware of that detail i, I i'm sure of that it, and secondly the ambiguity because it wasn't clear for whom uh the note was in, was uh, intended. Right. It was it was not clear, but it was resumed with Johnson. I mean, it was private secretary who had met me earlier in Ashdale yeah. during during a play or a watching play. Um, there there are pigeonholes in the mailbox were back to, were next to each other. Um, and often the desk clerk, um, uh, you know, would put would put one in the wrong place. Sure, um, you can imagine that happening. Pretty pretty. Uh... Pretty easily, sure. But but this is an example, actually, of, of some most of the characters that I've written about in all three of these novels are real. All all of the main characters are real. I haven't made any of them up. I have made up some of the minor characters, but not including the desk clerk at the hotel. I yeah. he's real. Yeah. Um. I mean, you know, he testified uh, before the military commission. Um. I so I. Testimony and was able to use that as well and use him as a character. I mean, I had yeah. to take him up. Yeah. Him. I think that's right. You know, invented. I mean, so we're not talking about the, you know, Natasha and, and Pierre from, from War and Peace. Sure. So it's it's different. Well, let, let's turn to the, the book. But first, um, let's talk a little bit about sort of the unifying character. Because again, you this, this is a John Hay mystery. The murder of Andrew Johnson, which follows uh, the first, the murder of Willie Lincoln, and the second, the attempted murder of Teddy Roosevelt. So, talk about John Hayden. I, you, you gave a few sort of details about him and sort of a son, in a way, to to Lincoln. But what appealed to to, to him uh, to, about him to you and? Uh, you know, in reading it, it's 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 hard not to think a little bit that John Hay is serving for you the function of a kind of author's voice in a way, and one is you know tempted to use the word alter ego. So, how did John Hay kind of present to you as an author? <laughs> John Hay, it was a delight. I mean, it, it was fun. It was interesting. And he Lincoln loved having him around because he was funny. Um, and and he and had a very interesting and varied career, um, and so he has seen all sorts of pieces of the world. Um, that I mean, he started out in Lincoln's White House, and he became a diplomat. Um, and and as he was leaving, Lincoln assigned you know sent him to well, he was in Paris and Madrid and Vienna, um, and then came back and became a journalist um, uh -huh. for the Tribune for several years. Um, and Boris, uh, Boris Greeley, Greeley's uh, tribute. At, yes, Boris Greeley's rag. The yeah. great moral, moral arc for him. Yeah. Greeley. Abolish, abolitionist and Republican yeah. kind of agitator. Yes, yes. A, a very strong point of view from that. Um, the paper, and actually, I mean, Greeley was a politician as well. Um, and he was yeah. not only founder editor of the paper, but he actually ended up running against Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah, running for re-election. Right. 
So he hires, uh, he brings John Hay aboard. And how, so how old is John Hay when he's getting to the Tribune? And I mean, what's the difference? And uh, I was kind of wondering what the difference in age also was between John Hay and, and Lincoln, r- roughly. Uh, well, Lincoln was in his 50, E. John Hay's 23, so it's about 30 years difference. Wow, so uh, quite, a, quite a difference. Yeah. So he was like a son to Lincoln. Yeah. I mean, he was a little bit older than Robert, but not much. You know, Robert Lincoln was Lincoln's oldest son who was in college at the time. Ah, uh-huh. Was he a boxer? Because you have, you know, you 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 uh, uh, bring him a lot, develop him as a as a boxer, and and kind of use that that skill pugilism as also a way of uh, framing his his character because you know naturally he's involved in a lot of confrontations. Um, he was not a boxer, uh-huh. but I went to an agent when I was working on the Lincoln book. And she said, if you were writing a, and I was already thinking about writing a series so close. Okay. She said, you were doing a, as a low-regarded agent in New York and Wendy Wild, who unfortunately passed away while I was writing it. Um, she said, if you are going to write a serious detective, he's got to have quirks. Uh-huh. And I went, she said, no, really, really. And I was thinking, I don't know, the, the neural wall mysteries where um his character you know is is you know 300 pounds in a brownstone in new york can raise orchids on the roof so you know so when you think about the character that's what you think about so i spent about six months trying to think of quirks <laughs> and and quirks <laughs> can, you come up with, can you give me an example of a rejected quirk oh but well even the ones i accepted wow um, He's an alcoholic, or he's, uh, you know, his... Well, I'm a pretty good one. Um, like a little unreliable as a narrator, which also is maybe needful. Um, he, um, he was a poet. And so I decided I'm going to make him a poet. Uh-huh. And I built a friend, and he said, well, why don't you make him a bad poet? Is just <laughs> an idea. Much easier to write bad poetry than good poetry. Uh-huh. Um, bad poet. Um, I never much liked his poetry anyway, um, and I mean, he, he wrote, he was the class poet in, at Brown University, oh, really? and, and he wrote a 362-line poem about poetry that was absolutely impenetrable. Oh, my goodness. But he actually got more fame as poet, he was to kind of frontier dialogue, mm-hmm. and, and, and the tribute near Europe. And then he actually got picked up and he ended up, you know, writing the books of poetry, which again, I'm not a big fan of. Well, the second work was boxing. I had done myself recently, and so I'd be lucky for a way to write about that. Um, uh, well, wait a minute. I have to stop you there. So you started the boxing uh, before you bestowed this quirk on him? Uh, I started boxing at the age of 60. What led you to? Okay, I have to ask you then. What led you to the to to, to Maybe that's a digression, but that's okay. What what led you to boxing? Yeah, I we were. Uh, I was going to a restaurant one night with my wife, and we parked around the corner. That was in Arlington, Virginia, and I parked around the corner to go to the restaurant, meet some friends there, and I passed a. He parked right in front of a, a place called L.A. Boxing, and I'm thinking to myself. Man, what I like to be able to do that, which I had never, I was not that kind of kid. I kind of always wanted to be, um, and I figured, wouldn't that be a great thing I could 
I went to that place, maybe I could get some here to there and handful of peoples and for little to do it really what it's about. Yeah. Wait, my wife was going away for a few days and so I signed up for the rest of and and she unfortunately came back a day early. I said, Where are you going? And I said, We were at our room and went. And uh, and came back and liked it and told her and we'll find up for a year. Um, it was mostly an exercise place, but they actually had you know boxing lessons. Right. Um, ended up doing the boxing lessons, and I did that for a number of years. And was sparring with people there and and doing a little conditioning, which is pretty heavy duty. Yeah. Um, and it's a very interesting thing. And I actually then was able to get myself from where I had been, which is uh. Don't, don't, I don't, I don't want to be in that situation to feeling quite comfortable in that situation. I don't know. Uh-huh. In the ring and, you know, sparring with other people. Okay. And so then that, uh, so that suggested itself to you as, as for a John Hay quirk. The, the two reasons, I mean, one, you, I want, as I said, I wanted to write about it because it's so interesting. It's one of the most interesting things I've ever done. Um, and two, I think milling unmasks you are inside um, because you're there alone in the ring somebody else and trying to get you as you're trying to get them and if your thing does get to maybe core it's a little overstable but if it kind of gets to your interior self um, and what you can handle and what you can't handle and how you feel about it um, and so uh, I mean I think that making a boxer really makes the reader understand some stuff about pain um, that they might not otherwise understand. Um, and 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 you're saying before about it, you know the, the author as the sort of identifying in a sense with the main character. Mm-hmm. Um, and my my mother read the Lincoln book when it was in Dallas. She said she had to stop every two pages because it sounded too much like me. Really. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, I mean, John Henry, and I've said this, in, in each of these three books, I have written in afterward. Yes, long three or four pages, which I've really liked doing, and to me, they're, in a way, the most interesting parts. Um, and that explain what is real, what is truthful, and what I have invented. Mm-hmm. And in all three, I acknowledge that the boxing has been invented. But that pain is... is his interior self is more like my own. Yeah. Um, well, that and so that makes sense. Yeah, and it's easy to see him as a person of. I mean, he worked in the, you know, the Lincoln White House. The background as a journalist, so he's not making such a huge t- transition to somebody who can solve mysteries that kind of depend on understanding the the intricacies of of power and how. Power is connected, you know, between people often in shadowy places in in Washington. So, you know, a lot of our typical mystery detectives in fiction are not people who have that kind of background. You know, they might be former cops or people, you know, people who just have experience in solving homicides uh, and, and then, you know, go into private practice, but this is not an example of, of John A does not really fit that kind of a model. No, it's not procedurals. 
in that sense. But I am trying to get a sense of how Washington looked at the time. I covered the White House for a number of years. Yeah. Um, and so I have a sense of how the White House operates. I've been inside it a lot. Um, not necessarily, I've never been upstairs, um, but that I've been inside it and have some sense of how people operate within the White House. It was much easier. I mean, it's a much smaller operation then um, than it than it is now. Um, and yeah, there was just no, you know, the White House was no wet wing until uh, Theodore Roosevelt um, built it. Right. But dynamics of how things operate in Washington are very similar to what they were. I mean, the, the um, I'm saying the decimal points have changed and how much money might change hands or how much money is at stake. Um, yeah. But the power dynamics have not changed very much. Um, uh, Henry Adams wrote in the 1870s, I believe, a novel called Democracy, which is basically a on our clip um, of year ago, how Washington worked then. And it is feels very familiar. Um, if, if one reads it now, it's not it's not a different rule. Yeah, for better or for worse. Right? For, for better or for worse. Yeah, yeah, I'm, yeah. I, I, I don't I, feel I, like you're glamorizing Washington, uh, but this is just sort of my own editorial comment, I suppose. Having, you know, I mean, you could you could make, and we're going to get into talking about this in the, the, the Andrew Johnson book, but you you could make things, I think, even a lot worse and more sordid. And and plausibly, you know, that would work as well. I mean, that, you know, that time in life on the Gilded Age. But, okay, let's talk. Um, one question that really arises that, is that your first uh, one was uh, Willie Lincoln. So we're in the, uh, we've got, you know, Lincoln, of course, as, as a character that, that is known to everyone. Then Teddy Roosevelt who also is a character kind of of mythological status in, in American uh, life and, and politics that people at least think they know. So it's intriguing when we get to the murder of Andrew Johnson because, you know, that's more of an AP history question. Uh, who was Andrew Johnson? I mean, never mind just asking the person on the street. I don't think you're going to get uh, uh, and I know who Andrew Johnson is, <clears throat> reply on that question, but even to the AP history student or the, you know, the college freshman, I mean, Andrew Johnson is an obscure figure uh, in, among American presidents. So, so why Andrew Johnson and what is it about Andrew Johnson before we get more into the book that should be known? Well, he, um, he is less obscure whenever there's subject of impeachment comes up. Ah, um, there you go. But well, why is that? Well, because the first president to be impeached had to be with um, And so whenever impeachment was just fairly acquitted, fairly acquitted, um, as there's been the case recently as well, fairly acquitted. Uh-huh. And, uh, and, and when I will... My editor at McMillan and I was trying to think of, I had a free book deal. And so we were trying it, and I quarter, actually. And I looked on Haynes' lifespan. When I was, so I wrote these three books out of order. 
And I was trying to decide on the third book and going back and forth with my editor about the choices. And again, he came back with two choices. One was Cornelius Vanderbilt, and uh-huh. one was Andrew Johnson. And But I had to have the deaths work in a way that could be kind of made into our, sort of our murder mystery but novel. And and I wrote her a, you know, two paragraphs on each one. And the last paragraph about Andrew Dobson was how he was so much like Donald Trump. That he was a Democrat, he was a bully, uh-huh. he loved, um, he loved, I mean, not, he didn't love his enemies in the way Jesus loved his enemies. He loved his enemies because he loved compiling them and having them because it showed his own worth. And she immediately said, that's the one. Because then you could basically write about Donald Trump without ever mentioning his name. Um, and so that's when we, that's when we decided with Andrew Johnson. And Andrew Johnson, because Andrew Johnson was the vice president to Lincoln. Well, like Lincoln had switched vice presidents for his second term um, for just basic political electoral reasons because this earlier vice president added nothing to the ticket. Lincoln looked like he was going to have a hard time getting reelected because the war was going badly. And Johnson was a Democrat who had been against the South seceding and had stayed in the Senate. He was the only Southern senator who stayed in the Senate after the Civil War broke out. And so... And he was supposed to be murdered the same night that um, Lincoln was and was not murdered that night for reasons that I get into in the book. Okay. Um, so he ended up being a pretty interesting character in, in that regard to start. And so that's why she said, yes, let's do it that way. Um, and if, you know, Biden is impeached, you know, the next yeah. Johnson will come back to the fore. Yeah. That's let's hope for the let's hope for the impeachment. So wait. So when you're having this conversation, where are we in Trump's presidency, more or less? Yes, we're in Trump's presidency. But okay, before though he his before I'm sorry, but was it before the first impeachment or was it before the second impeachment? Uh, actually, I think it was. Uh, I can't recall. Actually, it was before the first impeachment. Before the first impeachment. Okay, so the yeah, so there you had your kind of parallel and and. My other observation is it might maybe it's easier <clears throat> to do Andrew Johnson because because he's so much less known to people that that you can I don't know is it more like on a blank canvas than having to do a you know a Teddy Roosevelt for example. No, I'd rather I'd, I'd rather he had been known. Um, I mean, the reason she wanted me that she liked the Teddy Roosevelt idea is because Teddy Roosevelt is that and you know. Book readers, um, yes, and very well known. So I would have preferred that he'd be well known, but the choices were, you know, the choices were what the choices were. Ryan, that's sure. Our president, you know, as kind of thematic. I also really like the idea of John Hay at different stages of his life. Yes, and instead of writing a series of novels of mysteries where everybody, you know. Where it's always the same kind of unknown time. Yeah. Um, like the idea of like, in his first book, he's 23. In this book, he is just starting out in, you know, in adulthood. In the Andrew Johnson book, he is 36. Mm-hmm. Uh, has recently been married, has just had a first child. Yeah. Um, we can we could say that. Transition from you know bachelor blood to family man. Um, and in the third book in chronological order. 
Um, he is Secretary of State, which he was for William McKinley of the then Lozo. Um, chose there toward the end of his life, though it's not totally clear that it was toward the end, but it was. Um, and so it shows him at different stages of, I mean, I was very infected by um, uh, the John Updike route or rabbit series. Okay. Toward, sure. Um, I mean, where rabbit is at four different times in his life and at different stages of his life. And showing the character, you know, at you know, in in in, in that way, um, and I think I like the idea of John A. at different times. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, let's go to the the book. And again, we're not going to give the <clears throat> the story away, but I think it's all right to uh, to start at the beginning here in Chapter One, Saturday, July thirty first, eighteen seventy five. We have John A. And he's living in Cleveland with Clara, his wife, and the four and a half month old uh, Helen, uh, their daughter. And now we have him catching uh, the train <clears throat> because he's been notified that Andrew Johnson has died in the Elizabeth time. You can have to give me the correct pronunciation. I know that's that's the best. Okay, in the wilds of East Tennessee. So he's on the train, of course. The trains are so uh, uh, so much a part of the, the Gilded Age. The conductor brought me the Columbus newspapers. The printers strike in Kentucky. The anthracite coal miners strike in Pennsylvania. The weavers strike in Massachusetts. The shoe cutters strike in New York. What on earth was the world coming to? Indeed, all these strikes. So I, of course, those are where obscure... It, to me, and um, is part of the fodder, part of the purpose here to not just to reconstruct the era, but to impart a history lesson? A little bit. Absolutely. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make this era in American history come alive. Um, so, and 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 a very immediate way to do that is to, is to look at newspapers. Um, and so at various times, I hey, look at the newspaper. I, I tried to sort of limit that because I didn't want it to turn into kind of something trite. But um, but that's a way to understand what is happening in the world around him. I, I do think that, I mean, history can be entertaining and that it can really be fun and really interesting. And you kind of have to feel like you're there in order to get a feel of the, of the era. And so that's exactly what I was trying to do in having him kind of peruse newspapers. As he, you know, every so often, that's what he does, just so that readers can see the context in which all the stories happen. Yeah, and it's perfectly natural. I mean, to expect he's on the train, he's got some hours. And what's he going to do? You know, write news, read newspapers and so forth. In this research, then, was there anything that it surprised you, the way that you didn't anticipate about the Gilded Age itself? Um, well, nothing. Um, not. Really, I mean, I read some about the Gilded Age. Um, and, well, actually, yes, because the Gilded Age, you think of it as gilded, <laughs> as um, as as gold line. Um, there was a lot, a lot of wealth going on. Um, you know, and and uh, Edith Wharton writes about this very well in the Age of Innocence. Um, you know, the eighteen seventies. Yeah, and then amount of wealth going on, but there was also a serious depression. In 1873, and so there was a huge amount of what we now think of inequality, and so there was a lot of poverty 
just blocks away from where there was enormous wealth. Um, and so like I would, I like to go to places to try to feel them. And in Cleveland, Euclid Avenue, which is now just sort of part of downtown and not very interesting, but it used to be the million dollar mile. Um, and it was where all the mansions were. And I went and found where John Hayes house was. Um, it was being built at the beginning of this build up, but it really was being built. And, but a few blocks away from there, there was serious poverty. Um, and so it was this, it, and, and that's actually what was causing all of these strunks that you were just reading about. And so the Gilded Age kind of came forth to, you know, huge fights, um, physical as well as, you know, political, um, between capital and labor. And so it was, yeah. you know, it, it was not the, the sort of the knowledge it's, you know, in our 21st century, we think of the, you know, I mean, right now we have the Hollywood actors uh, and screenwriters strike. It's not quite the same thing. I think of the Gilded Age as having the, almost a physicality to it, you know, blood, sweat, and, and muscle. I mean, this this period of rapid industrialization. Right. And, and real, you know, nastiness, if you will, on the part of the capital. The nastiness. Um, we didn't have anything safety nets. No. Um, and the you know, the feeling about oh, they shouldn't be doing that is you know was less widespread than it than it might be now. Um, and so, in fact, John Hayes' real life father-in-law was an industrialist and railroad magnate who had been bought out by Vanderbilt. Um, and um, and so, and Alan Pinkerton, the Pinkerton detectives who. Um, became famous in the 1870s and 1880s for breaking up strikes, you know, and mostly possible. Um, he had actually done some work for John Hayes' father-in-law at times. Mm -hmm. So I have Pinkerton as a character. Yeah. Um, there's a detective work for John Hayes. And the um, I, what was the symbol of the Pinkerton? Uh... I never sleeps. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> Open eyes, right? The old CBS, you know, logo. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. That was that was uh, that was wonderful, and and also, I mean, to have a college education at that point must have—I don't know what the percentages are. It must have been very, very few people in America, you know, adults were college educated. That's, uh, yes, that's absolutely true. I don't know the percentage either. But John Hay came from a small town in Westby, Illinois, near Warsaw. Okay. Uh, on River about most his uncle was a um, thought it was a doctor, um, but not a very successful one. And his uh, and his uncle was a lawyer and was practicing law on the same floor out of a building in Springfield, Illinois, the capital, as Lincoln was. So he goes to read law because most people became lawyers, became lawyers not to law school, but reading for the law. Yes, yeah, kind of an apprenticeship. So he does that with his uncle, and his uncle, who has money, decides that he should go to Brown, um, where I think there, and maybe his uncle had gone. There's some family history at Brown University in Providence. Yeah. Uh, and so he, and for John Hay, ends up as this kind of Western bear, um, going to this, you know, sophisticated, you know, Ivy League college. Um, and it makes a huge amount of difference for him um, in terms of kind of his sophistication. Um, and it's intellectual, you know, development. Yeah, and that's part part of what makes him a a, a good layered or routed uh, 
character because I mean you could see how such a person could be more kind of on the defeat side, but but he's not, you know, because he's he's not really a, a flower of the you know one of the eastern you know Boston or one of the eastern cities, and and um, so I want to you know these these little uh, f- flashes of historical realism uh, grab me. Uh, Later on in the story, we're now in Washington, uh, where Hayes continuing his investigative work into what he has now concluded is, in fact, the murder of Andrew Johnson, not, not as the papers initially said, based on the doctors, that he died from what was called apoplexy. But Andrew, <clears throat> our, our protagonist, John Hayes, is convinced that it's Murder. So here he is in Washington. I walked north along 14th Street, a hodgepodge of stooped storefronts and ambitious edifices. The Foundry Methodist Church at G Street was a modest brick structure, trim yet self assured, that plausibly housed a back channel to God. What impressed me most is what I had expected to see, but didn't hogs in the gutter, geese on the prowl, the earthly remains of wheat willed mutts, the garbage rotting at the curb. Whoa. So this is uh, a picture that comes from where? Um, it comes from newspapers, by and large. Lots of histories of the period. I immersed myself in newspapers. A page after page after page, just looking at them, looking at them. And was there a main Washington uh, newspaper at that time? Yeah, uh, there were three or four. Um, Why do you folks not get started? An evening Star, um, which was a very fine newspaper, which died maybe one years ago. Um, very useful. Um, was wonderful newspaper. Um, and so I spent a lot of time on the Evening Star. There was also a newspaper I had never heard of called the Washington Chronicle, which only lasted for a few years. Um, well, it was much more gossipy and sort of closer to the street, if you will. And so they would have they had a column on the back page every day about all, all of these you know small events that happened. You know. Um, that I mean, one of my favorite, which I included in the book, was you know a sheep wandering into a jewelry store on Pennsylvania Avenue. Uh, this was true. Um, and and what had happened in Washington, there had been some guy named Boss Shepherd in in eighteen in the early eighteen seventies who had cleaned up the city, and so the description of the you know, geese in the gutters and the mud and all yeah. everything. So li- literally cleaned up yes. the city. But I, but I absolutely found those in earlier newspapers that I found all in the Lincoln book when the Evening Star was there and not, not the Chronicle. Um, and and these things are all there. How were, you able to, how were you able to read the newspapers now? Where are you? In the Library of Congress? Library of Congress, um, which is a fabulous place. And I happily, I live, you know, within. Yes. Let's give a shout out to the Library of Congress. I mean, which, well, first of all, I think it's wonderful that. You know, we think of journalism sometimes as a kind of debased uh, craft or, or profession, you know, f- full of, you know, fake news and all the rest. But it sounds to me like, I mean, these are pretty on point, uh, you know, on the ground observations. So just the fact, and again, I assume these these journalists are not people who have gone to college e- e- either, as is common now. So the but they were they were picking up all this stuff and and you know putting it in the papers. There was a, there was an audience, a readership for that. There would be accidents, you know, carriages wouldn't run into each other, and you know, the kid would be thrown thirty feet. Um, 
And I mean, these things, this, this is news. Um, I don't think we cover it well enough now, but it's kind of the small events that are really, you know, kind of people in your lives. Um, I mean, some of the stuff that was so common, it was harder to find out. Like, you know, who has the right of way at, at an intersection, um, which everybody knows. So well, I write about it in the newspapers. And so some of that stuff was tricky to figure out. But when there were, you know, accidents on the street and somebody was hurt, you know, if somebody was run over by a ray, well, sort of like kind of a flatbed truck um, or run into by a horse-drawn streetcar, um, this would make the news or it makes the kind of a yeah. that would be, sm- you know, small items. And, 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 and society page kind of stuff where you would, you know, people's so-and-so miss of such importance has arrived and washington and we'll be staying at you know such and such hotel i mean that that kind of thing absolutely, absolutely. and so and so went away for a vacation in new jersey and they came back right right is uh, a born the so and so on on in, in in voyage to you know liverpool or wherever uh so yeah you knew a lot and also that is now i mean people you know practitioners of power use the newspapers to, to plant items right Oh, sure. I mean, you know, journalists then were not as the, the ethics were what they are now. Um, and so I'm sure that a lot of newspaper women were kind of on the tape or, you know, had their favorite sources or, in fact, put things in. The stuff I was looking for, I think it's actually minimums. I mean, whose advantage is it, you know, to have a little, you know, a paragraph about a sheep walking into a jewelry store? Um, and that to me like, tells you a whole lot. Oh, yo, who know the beats on the gutters? That tells you a whole lot about the feel of the city at the time. Um, and so I just vacuumed all that stuff up as much as I could. And they kept files of all of the kind of really interesting little tidbits. And so when I was having him walk, jump my character, John Head walking with through the um, uh, city, or I would um, go look in those. And, and find kind of cool stuff. Yeah. They're, but they were all true. Right. Which is yes, and you address this as you say in the afterward way. You you go into some detail on on what is true. What, you know your approach to what you know is is true and and not. And I think um, yeah, that I mean, and that comes across. I think people understand that probably that Andrew Johnson wasn't murdered. At least at least we don't think he was. Still today, that's another question, I suppose. Uh, but. Um, you know, were they at the time? Did it come across to you at all that people thought that it could have been a murder? Well, uh, I think they back. Um, no, no, we thought it was a murder. But to go back to the night of the Lincoln assassination, um, when he was murdered and was not, and obviously had a great benefited from Lincoln's assassination by becoming president, Mary Lincoln and some of the radical Republicans in Congress thought that Johnson either was involved in being done with the thought or had knowledge of it ahead of time. Um, and and there was, in fact, a House Select Committee on the assassination of President Lincoln um, that, that, according to very little that was in what was then the equivalent of the congressional record, said that it was trying to investigate you know, high officials in government and whether they were involved. The, the Johnson. Um, they they never issued a report. 
Um, I went, the National Archives has no record of any depositions or any report. Um, and, um, and I looked for depositions and so forth in the personal papers at the Library of Congress by the, in, of the committee chairman. It's often the committee chairman which sort of grabs stuff and then even put it in their personal papers. I found two innocuous depositions about this. Uh, what I also found, and this is great, because sometimes I would just have this amazing moment. I was going through the files of this congressman named Benjamin Butler from Massachusetts, um, who was really drumming general during the war and then became a, a, a congressman. Um, and there was a file of um, John Wilkes Booth's telegrams. And so I was waiting through these or just kind of going out. And amazing, right? Uh, and so, yeah. yes, we're the, I've been in the magic division a lot. So I sort of know the people that are about. I said, are these real? And he looked up on in, 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 um, Google um, Wilkes Booth's um, signature and said, yeah. They are real. Whoa. These are who's actually wrote these telegrams, you know, to give to the Western Union guy um, to, to have them sent out. Um, and they were fairly innocuous. They weren't that interesting. But I'm sitting there in with John Wilkes Booth's handwritten television. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's such a tech tactile ex experience that uh, those were the only that were yeah, or yeah. And that well, it's wonderful to have access to that, and also the the depositions and things. And um, and I'll say again, I'm not going to give away the story, but you decide on I think a very interesting, inspired sort of choice of the of a villain that that puts it together. But we're not going to go there. I do, however, want to end uh, <clears throat> our conversation on a note of final passage that for me was extremely evocative and uh, as one who has, uh, talking about myself in my own life, kind of patrolled the bowels of the Capitol, here is something that uh, <clears throat> I did not know. So we have our John Hay inside the Capitol. He's glimpsed the peak of the Capitol dome and now he's in the interior. Capitol's interior felt cool, disengaged from the country it governed. It's, we're in August, so it must be pretty hot out there. Um, and then he's descending. The spiral stone staircase was as narrow as in a Transylvania castle. I expected to see droplets, and I did, shimmering down the walls. I found myself hurrying before the walls closed in. Below ground, daylight met its match. The pillars down here were as wide as tree trunks. Arches in the vaulted ceiling bore the Capitol's weight. I was inside the hill that held the Capitol, as if I had descended into a crypt. It smelled damp from storms long spent. The marble bathtubs in the basement hadn't changed any. A half dozen of them lined the wall, each in a cabinet of black walnut and adjoined by a toilet. Outside the nearest opening, the marble floor was wet. I walked gingerly, and then he meets the Vice President General Wilson in a bathtub. So, <laughs> I, so really, they were having baths down there in the Capitol. I mean, this was this was taking place. I've seen them. I've seen those bath balls. Um, Is the Senate over there? Where I've seen them. Our reason that the boarding that most members of the Congress did not have places in Washington. 
in because it was too expensive to rent or buy a place year round unless they were wealthy. And so they would come for a few weeks or a couple of months. And and a lot of the boarding houses did not have um, bed tubs or hot water. And so the carnivore needed to go and get clean. Um, and, they, and they had like orderlies who were, you know, scrubbing them or pouring the, you know, who got that job? Yes. Well, I mean, good work that you can get it, you know? Um, and so, yes, these are in the sub-basement. And they also had, um, like, well, the equivalent prison cells down there where they kept, you know, very occasionally, uh, the people were jailed there for a while, um, which I have going on in my Lincoln book, which is also true. Um, and I also found the room where the White House guard, Lincoln's White House gardener, was um, kept in prison for a while, and I figured out it was. Um, now, but the, but the cat, that old, obviously, um, and so when you could see this, you know, these things were there and they're still there. Yeah, and made out of marble, no less. Marble, only the best. Only the best. Yeah, only the best. Well, on that salubrious uh, note, uh, Bert, we're going to end our conversation. I thank uh, you for being here, for joining us on America and Beyond. Pleasure. Thanks for having me.